This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers, adult language, and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. I'm dreaming of a podcast of rare antiquities. This week on the show, we remember the movies we used to know, where rare jewels glisten and movie buffs listen to hear Harry and Jeff bitch about random stuff on the show. <laughs> uh, I am your host, Jeff. I am Harry. Ready to hey, bitch. Man. Yeah, ready to bitch. Welcome back. How's it going, buddy? Good, good. Great to be back. It's been a gong show, but always make time for the podcast to where I can, no, so it's awesome. Nothing's more important than the podcast, man. This is This is it. There are a few things that are more important, but not many. Yeah, no, that's fair enough, for sure. So this week, we're going back in time. We haven't explored this time period very much on the show. White Christmas from 1954. So I think this might be the farthest back we've gone so far. So Harry, uh, tell me if uh, if anything, had you uh, had any knowledge of, of this film or any any memories or or anything regarding this film? I can barely remember what happened yesterday, man. So, no. Okay. <laughs> no, on a serious level, no, I have not heard of this one. I mean, after watching it, I'm familiar with the genre. I've seen other types of films from this era, but this one in particular, I have not. Okay. No, fair enough. I'll, uh, I mean, I'll give you a little bit of my history with the film. I had never seen it before. My girlfriend introduced me to it a number of years ago. It was one of her sort of childhood staples growing up. They would watch this movie at Christmas time growing up. So she brought it into the household to watch. And at first, you know, I'm not a big fan of musicals and I am, you know, I don't have a lot of older films that I gravitate towards. So I sort of tolerated it in the house. And then over the years, just kind of came became part of our routine uh, around the holidays. You know, for me and my family, Christmas was always a pretty big deal growing up. So, you know, I, we have our rituals around the, the holiday season. And, you know, even, you know, so to this day, we still maintain some of those traditions and, and build some new ones. And this film kind of worked its way in there. So, so you watch yeah, this on a on a yearly basis then. This is yeah. your diehard. This is not my diehard. My diehard <laughs> is actually still diehard. Oh, very good. That's the right but, answer. Otherwise, I uh, was about to hit click. <laughs> yeah. And we'll see you. Chills canceled, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. We have a stack of Blu-rays that we have in the basement that we fish out every year and and we go through that stack of Blu-rays every every single year at Christmas time. Die Hard is one of those films. Last year, we tried to do a movie-watching gauntlet. We tried to do 24 films in 24 days, starting on December 1st. Did you make it through it? We did make it through it. Oh, wow. That's commitment. Uh, yeah, it was commitment because there are a lot of Christmas movies out there, but when you get to 24 movies, you end up scraping the bottle bottom of the barrel to to fill out those 24 nights and and we watched some pretty terrible shit so it, we decided not to do that this year just carry over the films that are actually decent i mean you know, we have our core of like say like eight nine movies that we always watch and then yeah, so why don't you sorry to interrupt but uh, mm. maybe this is a good segue here why don't you give me your core because i'll just like my i'm not big into saying i need to watch certain things every year as mentioned if there is one it's always die hard 
So Die Hard or Die Hard 2, because they're set in Christmas. Those are my Christmas movies. And then I guess like Christmas Vacation, if I catch it on TV, I don't own the film or anything like that. Uh, I'll watch bits and pieces of that one, but there's nothing else that I'll really watch that's like a Christmas movie for me. My wife, on the other hand, is completely different. She doesn't pull out movies. She tapes Summer Cute. Like their classics, like Charlie Brown Christmas or Garfield or some other cartoon ones or Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph and, and those things. And I'll, I'll catch bits and pieces here with her. She'll just, oh man, speaking of on <laughs> in the barrel, she'll find the worst yeah. TV Christmas movie crap I've ever seen. Yeah. And that's why I need Die Hard, man. Like in December, I've always got a hard one in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm talking about whiskey. <laughs> yeah, at least in one hand. At least in one hand. <laughs> no, my girlfriend's the same with the direct-to-TV Christmas garbage. She watches a shit out of that junk every single year. What is it about it? I don't understand. I what? do not understand either. I know I've seen like, – I caught a glimpse and I'm like, is that Dean Kane? And that motherfucker is in all of those TV movies. Him and Brooke Shields are in all those stupid TV movies and they are – the worst. Now, they haven't bought him out in the porn industry, I see. Okay. Not quite yet, but... They're getting there. In the uh, Batman v Superman porn parody, I'm pretty sure Dean Cain plays Alfred. <laughs> oh, I love it. It's Alfred. <laughs> he couldn't even crack Superman again. That's, that's awesome. Well, you know, he's a little older now, right? Oh, so you can't. Uh... I feel sorry for the guy. I, I like, Actually, I liked him as Clark Kent and Superman. I did, I didn't too. Mind. I didn't I did mind. too. I, well, I remember watching it when it came on because that's all I had for superheroes at the time on TV. That was the lull. So that's what we got. Yeah, that really was the lull. And uh, you know what? They did the best they could with what they had. That was... Early mid nineties, you probably were high school. Yeah, high school. Uh, yeah. I mean, Terry Hatcher only ran for three and a half, four seasons. Terry Hatcher is still my Lois Lane. To what? Be yeah, yeah. Hard to argue. She she was good. She was pretty good. I'll still give the props to Margot. Yeah, but that's just me. You know, that's a different, very different portrayals of the character. It's quite true, but yeah, all different and all not bad. Like if you're talking about Margot, Terry, and Amy Adams, but yeah. but yeah, let's let's move on. Let's get back on yeah. track. Yeah, for sure. So to, to answer your question, as far as my core movies go, uh, this has worked its way in there. So what else is your core? G give me, give okay. me a few up top of your head here. Yeah, so Die Hard and Die Hard 2, I'm sort of the same as you. At least one of them needs to make the rotation. It's usually Die Hard, but sometimes I like to watch Die Hard 2 because of how ridiculous it is. It's fucking awesome. And, and, and fucking podcast. awesome. Yeah, that's another podcast for sure. A couple other ones, I, I like some of the old TV stuff cartoons from being a kid like uh, Rudolph is one of my favorites Garfield Christmas an underappreciated one is Mickey's Christmas Carol that was our introduction to Scrooge McDuck before he was Scrooge McDuck he was playing Ebenezer Scrooge and that's where the character of Scrooge McDuck actually came from was that short film okay encouraging it's very very well animated and drawn animation back in the old days there is great there's this really rare gem shit we should have done that well it's only a half hour so it'd be hard to do i think it's from 1987 it's called a claymation christmas special and it's like a variety show but it's put on by these two claymation dinosaurs and <laughs> it's totally preposterous Sold. hilarious yeah <laughs> in. it's great uh what are you watching, man? It culminates in a rendition of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer put on by the uh, California Raisins, if you remember those motherfuckers. <laughs> oh, I remember those guys. Yeah. That's awesome. I've got it on DVD, but I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube. It's only a half hour long, man. I, you want to no, have no. a good laugh. I got the Star Wars holiday special. It's enough for me. Yeah, that. the less said about that one, I think. 
I think the better. Anyway, those those, those are some of the core. There's a, there's a couple other movies that uh, that make it into the rotation on a regular basis. Uh, Scrooged with Bill Murray is one of our oh well, yeah, it's a good one. Uh, core hits there. We just watched that the other night. And then you know we work in other ones here and there. Uh, you know if a new one comes out that looks good, we'll we'll throw it into the rotation. We tried putting Gremlins into the rotation last Ooh. year, but it just has not aged all that well. Yeah, Gremlins is a tough one. It's a half-half. That, that's a, maybe a good one for one day in, on the show to pick up. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. It's one of those movies from the 80s that we what we remember, you know, maybe more fondly than it actually deserves. But let's get back to the task at hand here. So just before we get into the synopsis here, I, I will throw in uh, a little bit of trivia and then I'll pepper some throughout the way. Sorry, yeah. can, can I ask for... you just one quick question? I don't know yeah. if you were going to ask this later. Musicals in general, we're getting into the genre. Yes. So is there one that you really, that's your go-to musical, the one that you really like? Because, I mean, I'm not big on the genre myself, but there are a couple that I enjoy. No, for me, no, not really. You know, I'm open-minded and, and you know, I haven't seen a whole lot of musicals because it's just, it's, it's not something that I gravitate towards. This one would probably be, you know, the only one that I would consider sort of as part of the, you know, the regulars that I would go to. The only thing that comes close, the only thing that comes close is the musical episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which... Not everybody gets it, but if you're interested in seeing a totally different take of a one-hour TV show, the musical episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I thought it was fucking terrific. <laughs> what about you? Well, I was going to say my favorite musical moment of all time is the few-second parody they did on The Simpsons of Paint Your Wagon. <laughs> The Homer and Bart are like psyched to see, you know, Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood in a Western together. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. gonna paint your wagon. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck is this? It's so fucking funny, man. I love that. I think that that's my, fun. I think that's my favorite of all time. But Sound of Music, Moulin Rouge. I really have fond memories of Moulin Rouge watching it in the theater, you know, seeing Obi-Wan belt out a tune. You mean, you can't beat that. He had a good voice, actually, too. Yeah, he, he does. does. good job, yeah. I like that movie. It was creative. You know, I'm hearing good things of La La Land, actually, so it's something I mm. kind of want to see if I get a chance over the holidays. I'm not big on Grease. I know my wife likes Grease. Yeah, I think Sound of Music and Moulin Rouge, for me, is up there drawing a blank. I'm sure I've seen many more, but I've seen too many Bollywood movies. It's like, you know, it's like... Uh, <laughs> They're all fucking half musicals anyways, so. Yeah, that's obviously a class of its own, for sure. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up Moulin Rouge, because it was sort of at the start of what was going to be the new, the revolu- the new, like the revival of the genre, and it never really kicked into gear. And it's an interesting film. I really wanted to like Moulin Rouge. I wanted to like it a lot, and it is an interesting movie, very, you know, visually, and there are good songs and good moments, but... Uh, for me, it never, it just did not come together for whatever reason. You know, Chicago got a lot of press. I think Chicago won Best Picture Oscar that year. Actually, I was going to say, the year that it came out. I was going to say, actually, Moulin Rouge led to Chicago a year or two later, which yeah. won the Oscar. That was kind of the, I agree with you, it was supposed to launch the genre again and back into the mainstream, but. I think people, critics, uh, for some reason, Chicago was a critical hit, and mm-hmm. I do not understand why. I think Moulin Rouge just destroys that movie in every aspect. Oh, um, I completely agree. Chicago, I, ah, oh, man, I did not enjoy that film at all. I thought it was not well done at all. I've never seen the stage show, but it was not good. 
No. I think it was not good at all. And now that we're on the topic, just one more question, then we'll move on back to White Christmas. What did you think of Joel Schumacher's Phantom of the Opera with Gerard Butler as the Phantom? Never seen it. Oh, really? Okay. No. You lost me at Schumacher. Joel Schumacher. I mean, yeah. And Gerard Butler. So, man, that combo. Oof. The trailers for Phantom of the Opera were good. And so I rescinded my Joel Schumacher boycott because of Batman and Robin to go see it and immediately regretted it. Although it did have moments of visual brilliance, the movie's a big fat piece of crap. I would expect so, yes. Yeah. Although if you have a chance to go see the stage version... Um, I would want to. Musicals for me belong more on the stage. That's yes. where I, I've seen a few musicals in London when I visited. So I watched a couple there and it was it's a good time. I enjoy seeing a live performance like that. Yeah, they work on stage, I think, brilliantly. But on film, it's a different story. Anyway. All right, well, let's get back to the film here. So uh, let's throw down some trivia. White Christmas was released October 14th, 1954. It's hard to come by budgetary numbers from films of this era that you know the records are not that easy to come by looks like it grossed about 30 million dollars at the box office in 1954 it was the most successful film of that year Hmm. bing crosby was a big star at this point obviously a film starring bing crosby's uh as Bob Wallace, our lead character. Bing Crosby's an, a bit of an interesting fellow. He was born May 2nd, 1903, and that date will become relevant. So just keep that uh, in mind. Now, you know, obviously Bing Crosby is known primarily as a singer, very prolific singer, but he does have numerous acting credits. He's been in over 100 things, uh, TV and film. He won an Oscar in 1945 for his portrayal of a, a young priest in the film Going My Way. And that was uh, Actually, I have no idea because I don't know a goddamn thing about that movie. (laughs) Sorry. I don't know. I don't actually, I don't think it was. He also sang on live radio and that was still a thing. He died in 1974. He played a full 18 rounds of golf and then died of a massive heart attack as he walked off the course. Wow. Speaking of Alan Thicke earlier there, died on the ice and this uh, Crosby died on the green. Hopefully Sid doesn't experience one of those fates. (laughs) (laughs) Not not until you're old, right? At least, right? So one interesting tidbit about Bing Crosby, he is one of only six actors in history to be nominated for an Academy Award for for the same role, but in two different films. What role was that? That was the uh, role of the priest in Going My Way and the sequel to that, but I can't can't I cannot recall the name of the sequel. What was it called? Going my way again. Going my way. We're not going my way. Fuck. <laughs> going your way. Yeah, yes. Have it your way. <laughs> or that's what Burger my, King. That's where Burger King came no, from. No, it's right? called going my way to my way harder. Well, that's more appropriate for the season. Yeah, exactly. Do you want to know who the other five actors were? Sure, go nuts. I won't go through all of them. One was uh, Al Pacino for The Godfather. Okay, makes sense. Godfather 2. And one of the other six was your boy Sly Stallone. Oh, yes. Rocky. Rocky and for Creed. Yeah. So have any other initial thoughts before we get to the plot? No, let's get into it. All right. White Christmas. It's Christmas Eve, 1944, on the European Allied Front at the twilight of World War II. The sounds of war explode in the distance. But for one American division, the war is on pause. Some of the men are putting on a little Christmas show before moving up that night. Captain Bob Wallace and Private Phil Davis are a couple of old crooners putting on an old-fashioned song and dance when General Thomas Waverly crashes the party. He's being replaced tonight, but before we can witness a heartfelt farewell, the Nazis start shelling their position. I guess Christmas is cancelled. 
In the confusion, Captain Wallace is nearly crushed by a collapsing brick wall, but is pulled to safety by the quick action of Private Davis. After the battle, Captain Wallace stops by the medical tent to thank Davis and wish him well. If he ever needs anything, just call. As it turns out, there is something. Davis thinks that the two of them make a heck of a duo, and when they get back to the States, maybe they should team up. Wallace isn't really into it, but after some guilt tripping and puppy dog eyes, he agrees. Back in America, the Wallace and Davis show is the hottest ticket going. The boys are on perpetual tour, and Phil Davis can't get a moment's peace. Bob is all about the work, and he's not slowing down. And all Phil wants is 45 minutes to himself. A little bit of conspiring has the boys auditioning a sister act at a lounge after their own show. The Haynes sisters are talented, blonde, and beautiful. Judy Haynes and Phil seem to get along okay, but there's a bit of friction between Bob and the other sister, Betty. As Betty and Bob get things off on the wrong foot, Judy and Phil have a grand old time singing and dancing together, at least until the sheriff shows up. Turns out the ladies have a dispute with the landlord over a rug. Sensing an opportunity, Phil offers their train tickets to New York to the ladies while they distract the sheriff, which they do with a rather unique rendition of the Haynes sisters' act. Once the show is done, the boys whisk themselves away to the train, where they conveniently run into Betty and Judy once more. They're headed to an inn in Vermont to put on their sister act for the holidays. After some poking and prodding, Phil convinces Bob that Vermont will be beautiful this time of year, with all that snow. But when the train pulls into the station, it feels more like Florida than Vermont. They haven't had snow since Thanksgiving, and the forecast isn't looking good. On to the Columbia Inn, where the ladies are booked for the holidays, and the balmy weather has chased away all the would-be skiers and winter vacationers. Looks like the inn is going to have to cancel. That is until old General Waverly shows up on the scene with an armload of firewood and a head full of steam. He's not canceling anything. Oh, and what do you know? It's Captain Wallace and Private Davis, too. Turns out after his retirement, Waverly acquired the inn. But after sinking his life savings and his pension into it, he's marching toward bankruptcy. It's going to take a miracle to save this place. Maybe a Christmas miracle. <laughs> Phil knows all about conspiring, and Bob decides to get the entire show up to the inn from New York in time for Christmas. A blockbuster show from Wallace and Davis will certainly pack the house. But knowing that the general will never accept such a gesture, they try to keep things quiet. They move the sets and crew up to the inn under the pretense of rehearsing over the holidays, but it doesn't matter, the general is preoccupied. He's applied for reinstatement to the army. It's all for naught, though. It seems when they had put him out to pasture, they intended for him to stay there. But the show must go on, and as the Haynes sisters are integrated into the Wallace and Davis show, Betty and Bob eventually start warming up to each other. Phil's plan is working perfectly, and it seems things between him and Judy are heating up as well. But a little misunderstanding involving an eavesdropping housekeeper in a game of telephone, and Betty drops out of the show and leaves for New York. Bob heads to New York to go on TV to invite the entire 151st Division to the Inn as a surprise for General Waverly. He tries to convince Betty to come back to the Inn as well, but she's playing coy for now. She thinks the whole thing is just a publicity stunt for Wallace and Davis. Back at the Columbia Inn, the general is suiting up for a nice, quiet Christmas Eve dinner with his granddaughter and maybe taking a show. But when he arrives in the main hall, it's decked out with every member of the 151 that could be packed in. Betty has decided to return too, and they put on a grand Christmas show for the old man. Just as the show reaches its crescendo, the snow starts falling. Looks like a white Christmas after all. The end. That's white Christmas, so just... You know, from the synopsis, what's your assessment of the plot and storyline? Very cute, schmaltzy, you know, Christmas movie, TV movie of the week kind of feel. 
for the time and for the genre, it's, it sounds okay. I mean, it, it sounds pretty standard and par for the course, but there's probably a couple little nuggets there that I do like with trying to help the old general out and stuff like that. But everything, again, it's in the execution and the details. So For sure. So just before we get into the, the blow-by-blow here, a couple other points. So as I had mentioned before, Bing Crosby was born May 2nd, 1903. The actor who played General Waverly, name is Dean Jagger. Dean Jagger was born on November 7th, 1903, which actually makes mm. him seven months younger than Bing Crosby. Yeah, so he's, yeah uh, he looked younger, except then they just dyed his hair. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But Dean Jagger also was very prolific in film and TV. Yeah, I've seen him somewhere, and I couldn't put my finger on it. Yeah, no, I mean, such classics as A Revolt of the Zombies, I Escaped from the Gestapo. <laughs> uh, that was the one? <laughs> on the Threshold of Space. <laughs> He was in an episode of The Twilight Zone. Was he in Star Trek? He was not on Star Trek, okay. uh, but he was on an episode of The Fugitive. He uh, was on an episode of Columbo. He was also on an episode of Kung Fu with David Carradine and an episode of Shaft, the TV show. No, I probably didn't probably didn't catch him then. He's probably just got one of those faces then. He's got one of those faces, yeah. Do you want to know what our Star Trek connection is, though? By all means, please enlighten me. Yeah, so Bing Crosby's son, Dennis, who was oh. a bit of an actor, not too much. Yes, yes. Had a daughter yes. named Denise, Denise Crosby. yes, there you go. Yeah. Tasha yeah. Yar. Tasha Yar on uh, The Next Generation. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Very so, good, very yeah. good. I remember now. Now I remember, yeah, she was related to Bing Crosby, yes. Our other uh, principals here, so Danny Kay played Phil Davis, mm-hmm. and he was kind of a jack-of-all-trades. He, he was, was the Jar Jar Binks of the movie. He was the Jar Jar Binks, yeah. In, in a good the, way. Uh, yeah, exactly, in a good way. He, his ears were less floppy, and he didn't get his stung tuck in a jet, stuck in a jet engine. So, <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, exactly. Yeah. He was a musician, comedian, dancer, singer, actor. I mean, he did it all. Originally, the part was supposed to go to Fred Astaire. And that would have uh, reunited him with Bing Crosby for their third outing together. But Fred Astaire did not really dig the script, dropped out of the project, and eventually went to Danny Kaye. Vera Ellen was uh, Judy Haynes. Vera Ellen was a dancer. You could tell. You could tell. And that's the funny thing is my... My wife was just like, she watched the movie with me and she says, my God, is she skinny? That's all she could talk about. And she was a toothpick. And I could say she's probably, and obviously, because you just see her dancing through the whole thing. I'm saying, man, she's just a dancer. Yeah. Who didn't need a fucking thing in her life? I wondered where she put all of her internal organs in yeah. a couple of those scenes like <laughs> yes. that. That belt was cinched around her spine. That's not a corset. That's, no. oh, fuck, that's, I don't know, some kind of torture device. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, they had to remove shit, I think, to put her into that uh, outfit there. I think Mr. Mr. Burns has more weight than her. Yeah, I think so. I think so. They probably had to put her in magnetic boots to keep her on set. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Two pairs of gravity boots. She danced on Broadway. She danced in Hollywood with some of the greats, Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire. She did not provide her own vocals here. She, because... Are you you serious? Where the hell would the sound... Yeah, she did not sing. Oh. Well, where, I mean, where I know the it's all come from, dude. Like seriously, <laughs> yeah. You know, her voice is her voice, except when that character is singing. Hmm. The only moment where her singing voice is captured is when they arrive in Vermont after they get off the train and they're about to get into the car to go to the inn, and they recite the first line of their song "Snow," hmm. and this, you know, like "Snow, snow, snow, snow." That so that was her voice. 
that was the only time we heard her singing voice. Yeah, as a dancer, she didn't have a long career, but in her career, fairly prolific. She appeared in 14 films over a 12-year period, and that was pretty much it. White Christmas was her second last appearance. So Yeah, and then Augusta Wind just probably blew her into space. Yeah, so. yeah exactly. <laughs> she lives, Never to be she lives seen in the moon again. now, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of voices being dubbed, a couple of no interesting notes about the soundtrack that I thought were was kind of neat. So, as I said, Vera, Vera Lee did not provide her own vocals, so she was a dancer, not a singer. The vocals were provided by a singer by the name of Trudy Stevens. Another interesting moment or point about the soundtrack is Rosemary Clooney was who played the other sister, Betty Haynes. She was under contract with Columbia Records, and the rights for the soundtrack were held by Decca Records. So her exclusivity with Columbia prevented her from appearing on the soundtrack. Oh, really? So once, yeah, so the soundtrack was released. Rosemary Clooney's parts are performed by a singer named Peggy Lee. So they used the new technology to remove Rosemary Clooney's vocals and dub over another singer. So even to this day, there's no official soundtrack for White Christmas. The uh, I'm sure George George Clooney has the secret soundtrack stashed somewhere. He well, listens he to it a, every night. No, yeah, he listens to it every night, which is, that's some Norman Bates shit right there. Dude, he's probably bobbing for apples as he's listening to that thing and crying. So, as you've alluded to, or um, as I've spoiled, I'm sorry. As you've spoiled, so thanks for nothing. It's my way. Uh, yeah, no, you may have heard of her uh, obscure cousin, some asshole named George Clooney. Uh, nephew, she, isn't it? Nephew? That's hey. what I said. Not not cousin, nephew. Yeah, that's what I said. Nephew. She actually co-starred with George on a single episode of some TV show called ER that you, I don't know if you've heard of it. And she got an Emmy nomination for that single appearance on TV. Of course she did. Of course she did. Very prolific career as well. Rosemary, it was a pop singer in the 50s. She did, you know, suffer from depression and drug addiction in the 60s. But after, you know, the 70s and onwards, she she continued recording until she died in 2002 of lung cancer. So don't smoke, kids. Yes. All right. Thanks for the advice. Anyway, so those are the principles there. Any uh, any thoughts on our, our main players? Any of the trivia? Interesting trivia, especially about the soundtrack. That's a pretty cool little nugget there. Yeah, I mean, I liked, you know, we can get through it through as we go through the movie, but I liked pretty much all the four main players in this movie, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. I've never seen them in anything before. I mean, I've heard, obviously, I've heard of Bing Crosby and I've heard of Rosemary Clooney, but never seen them in anything or I've never even heard them sing or have seen any other Crosby's musicals. So I guess I'll just say I, I liked all four players in this movie for what they provided. Mm-hmm. I thought they had good chemistry as a quartet. They all sort of fit together. That yeah, I agree so, so let's get to the breakdown here. Movie opens in uh, Christmas Eve, 1944. It's not clear if it's the uh, in the European front somewhere. Not sure if it's Italy or France, but you know, we get, you know, we see the war-torn background and the Christmas show that they're putting on here. So just going with the opening sort of World War II setting here, Harry, what did you think of this introduction to these characters and the film? I loved the opening. I already want to state it right away is I was really impressed with the set design. It got me into it. They did a really good job depicting war-torn, yeah, whether it's France or Italy. I mean, I felt like, I think I just finished playing Battlefield 1 and then I was watching this <laughs> and I was saying, oh, right at home. So it's like, <laughs> and they did a pretty good job. With Different the war, but okay. Different war, but I mean, yeah, same type of surroundings. I know, I'm just busting your balls. Anyway. Yeah, so it was pretty, pretty good. I like the intro to the characters. I mean, you know, obviously because it's a musical, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. So when they started singing, it was like, Okay, Jeff picked the musical. 
Okay, so now I gotta say, I gotta <laughs> I gotta put myself into a different mindset because I literally knew nothing of this movie. And my wife, she's seen this before, and she goes, "Oh, I remember this movie." And I initially said, "Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> fuck, what did Jeff get me into?" I enjoyed the opening. It sets the tone, sets the character, sets the ongoing joke of how the private forget his last name, how he saved uh, Wallace, and you know, you always rubbing the arm and everything like that. I I, I did get a good chuckle how he went, you know, the, the, it's an old classic. 60s type of 70s type of joke that kind of humor light humor where oh i'm injured but then i'm faking it and then he shakes his hand out of the sling it puts yeah, it right back i actually got a good chuckle out of that i felt they had a really good rapport right off the bat yeah i, I agree they they establish chemistry pretty quickly and i yeah it's a it's a cheap old joke but he sells it well there with yeah with the handshake out of the yeah. sling there after he saves his life yeah but i do want to mention one thing and i think i'll say it now before i forget this point right. this whole movie ends up in the i don't want to skip to the end but i just want to talk about the premise itself all these people because like this one general waverly he's leaving and another guy is coming in to take his place right yeah that's right so at the end of the movie this whole division is trying to help the general yeah that not only left whether it's his fault or not like they kind of left him on the war field in the middle uh, on the field in the middle of a battle or a war the fucking bombs are going off still but the guy who replaced him saved all their fucking lives still shouldn't he get the credit well how did, i don't <laughs> I mean, know they're the all guy, alive no. well they all got out of, well we don't know who how many got out alive but the guy who replaced them was getting lost on his way back to the command center yeah, but it wasn't his first day there. Uh, it was going to be slack. his first day there. Yeah. yeah, I'll cut the guy some slack. We don't know that. Well, I'm just joking around. Maybe, half, maybe kind of- half of the 151 was completely slaughtered in the advance thanks to Waverly being relieved. He was obviously a giant cock is what I'm saying. The replacement. Okay. I just found it kind of funny. It's like, you know, the movie's about helping the guy who abandoned the division in the middle of well, the war. No, but he didn't abandon them. He got reassigned. Uh, he got reassigned. I know. I'm just joking around. But then I was just saying, if I'm assuming that the division who knew General Waverly, they all made it back. These are, they all show up at the end. But anyways, that's jumping forward. Yeah, no, that's jumping forward. Exactly. So anyway, so at the end of this little sequence here, Private Davis, we get the impression that Wallace is somewhat famous already. And Private Davis, you know, kind of guilts him into, you know, when they get back to the States, put on a little bit of show, a bit of a duet. And then we get back to the States and we get a light, nice little montage and we're, you know, given to believe that the new show, the duet, the Wallace and Davis show is basically the biggest show of that type in the States. You get the classic or, you know, and it's said it said at this time, so we can't fault them for doing it, is the newspaper clippings as they keep, yeah. you know, year by year, month by month. Oh, they're big. Oh, they're big again. They're even bigger now. Throwing another show and you get all those clip scenes back and forth. Yeah, exactly. And you couldn't really do something like that today with a straight face. No, you couldn't. But one thing I do want to mention is this is one of the weaker parts of the movie is then they start showing little clips of them performing and oh my god (laughs) this was ridiculously cheesy how they're kind of like waving you know they're doing that little leaning forward on the cane and i'm remembering all the way back to uhf where those two loser fucking brothers go they were not far off from just doing that you know they're just kind of moving forward i know it wasn't the point in the movie because they're trying to rush through it to get to the meat meat of the story but oh man this little montage was not pleasant definitely a little corny i find it concise and and i think there's an advantage to kind of keeping it quick there because we want to get to the story and this is one of the difficulties in going back and analyzing a film from this era in a genre that we're not familiar with because i watched that straight i figure like that's just what the show is right like that's what they do they should have yada yada it yeah, they should have yada yada it. Exactly, yeah. Yada, 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 we're fucking famous. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, so we end up, uh, we catch up with the boys at a uh, club. I think they're in Florida or Carolina, somewhere like that, tropical, playing at a club. And they're they're arguing in the dressing room after the show there as Davis just wants a moment's peace. They're always on tour. They're always working. They're hugely successful, and that doesn't give them a, a moment's peace. What I liked about this scene here is they get into the dressing room it's all it's all one cut it's all one shot yes they're yes. there back and forth which i thought was uh, pretty good that's uh that's hard that is hard to do a lot of people don't appreciate and that's good yeah i picked that up on i picked up on that too and it was a it was a great job that they managed to get through this actually i wanted to point out here too I enjoyed this scene because, you know, in movies of this era, you know, when we talked about Sunset Boulevard, I mentioned that one of the things I hate about this time period is that it's forced drama, forced dialogue. It's not natural. The actors are trying to over-dramatize some mm-hmm. of the, the scenes, and it is very off-putting to me. In this scene here in the dressing room, it didn't come across that way. They felt a little bit more natural in their discussion. And I, Mm -hmm. and the dialogue was written a little bit, you know, loose that it could come across as more natural. And I really appreciated it. They did a good job. I totally agree with you that that it doesn't feel overwritten or overdramatized. It gets a little too zippy to be natural, but they have such good chemistry with each other that. They, they pull it off very, very well. And I think that there's a lot of movement in the scene because they're, they're changing clothes and such a simple thing you wouldn't think can add to a scene. But it, I think it helps the like the physicality of the actors where they're doing something as they talk. I think it, those lines come across as a lot more natural when they're, you know, they're not just sitting there talking to each other. They're, they're doing something. Mm-hmm. Even as you know, something inane as as doing that. But anyway, so we uh, we get the impression that Davis wants to get his good buddy Wallace married off and have a bunch of kids so he can get a few minutes to himself. And he's obviously uh, you know he talks a little bit about how the women in this business that you meet there seems like a lot of work. Good seems like a lot of yeah. work. Like you know, the rest of this movie, he's taking a lot of fucking time to get this done. Why don't you just pay him a few bucks to just go to a stripper and then you can go do what the fuck you want? I suppose or a you... prostitute. Like he could have he could have done that. Yeah, what was the prostitute situation in the 50s, do you think, in the United States? I, I don't know. I guess you could have. I don't know. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure they were there. They've, they've been there since the beginning of fucking time, man. Yeah, I guess I guess so. What do I know? All right, uh, moving on. <laughs> where? What movie are we doing here? <laughs> so Davis has, uh, we get we get the introduction of his conspiracy here. He's in, He uh, says he got a letter from an old war buddy who wants them to audition his sisters, the Haynes sisters. Uh, so they're at the club and they're going to perform a show there. They head, they head out and we get Betty and Judy Haynes and they perform their uh, their sister act here. This, so this is our introduction to the girls, their musical act. What did you think of the of the sister act? Terrible. But this is the one scene I really didn't like. I just really didn't like the number, to be honest. And it gets even worse when they start doing it. Just speaking of the sisters, I mean the the voice talent, whoever's singing. I know it's Rosemary Clooney and whoever the Peggy Lee, whoever whoever's overdubbing voice. You know their their voices are good. Just the, I didn't like the number. They're mm. moving very slowly with the fans, but I found it very lackluster. I was I was not impressed mm. with the introduction of these sisters. No, that's fair enough. I mean, I, I kind of like the number, but it does suffer from two things because, you know, obviously Rosemary Clooney's the only one providing her own vocals here, as uh, Verily did not sing. But because Rosemary Clooney's not a dancer, they couldn't showcase Vera Lee's talents. So they it is a little bit slow and it plods a little bit because we're kind of doing half, right? Yeah, and that's why the movie segues to the romance with Crosby and Clooney. And you get Kane and Vera, whoever, 
Sorry, I forget yeah. her name. The dancers. So that's why they kind of do their own separate acts the rest of the movie. Yeah, that's right. To, yeah, to they, those, they to that kind of showcasing. That's right. Yeah, they kind of they break them off a little bit because it's a little it, it fits a little bit better. So yeah. they go and do the dance. And I, I guess it's a bit of a cliche. They don't get along right away. And yet they still have some chemistry. I like the dialogue here, how it's written, where he's saying, you know, like you guys played an angle and it worked. And she's sort yeah, of resentful. I like that. That, that was great. Yeah. And yeah. that's another that's another prime example, a very good one. It feels relatable and yeah. I wouldn't say modern, but it comes across as something I can see someone saying naturally instead of this yeah. forced dialogue bullshit. I really like that interchange, actually. It felt to me uh, natural as well because they weren't sort of butting heads straight on like – He's like, you're playing an angle. She's like, no, we're not. And she's offended. He's like, it's all good. Like, yeah, he's saying it's cool. Don't worry about it's it. All, it's all good. Like, it's fine. You're playing an angle. So that was a, a nice little interchange there. We get the dance number with Judy and with Phil. What do you think of the dance number? Well, I, I mean, you know, I don't I don't know anything about dance. So it looked fine. I thought it played out all right. I mean, they, they, see, they have good chemistry. I mean, Danny Kay, although he could dance. I was certainly not up to the caliber of, of Vera Lee, but I thought he did a. I thought he did a, a pretty good. Sorry, Vera Ellen. I thought he did a, a pretty good job. It was fine, but again, you know, it was it was fine. I don't watch dance numbers myself or shows that have dancing, even though my wife does. So, but I can't really critique it. But I did enjoy it. I liked it, even though this is kind. Of, I mean, it's the point of the musicals, but these are the parts that I really don't enjoy when I watch musicals is just simple dance numbers. I'd prefer it mm -hmm. to be mixed here. It's just, we're just going to showcase our talent and what they can do. Yeah. And I don't like that, but I did like the moves. Like it didn't last too long. So it didn't really, you know, detract from the film, but it was okay. It was okay. It doesn't really advance the plot, but no, it does not advance the plot at all. Yeah, it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's quick and, you know, and then we're back on to the story, right? So the sheriff shows up and it seems the girls had a little bit of trouble with the landlord uh, because I guess they smoked too much. I don't know, burned a hole in the rug. So shenanigans, the girls get the club tickets on their train to New York City and they distract uh, or they stall for the girls to get away and they put on the sister's number by putting on I hated this rendition. Thing, yeah. I okay, well, well, tell but, me why. You know what? I've seen other movies from this era where for some reason, this is not even just in US movies or North American movies. It's even, you see it internationally too. Back in that time, I guess it was just something that you know, nobody was used to someone cross-dressing or that possibility or anything like that. It's just felt like it was such a taboo thing that when people are doing it for jokes, it was okay and they really enjoyed it. And mm. I really – it's not that I'm uncomfortable seeing this. I just don't find it funny. It's just like it feels so forced. It's just like, ah, oh, I just – I don't like it when they play this for obvious laughs. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's what it felt like. It felt cheap. It felt obvious. And it was probably one of the low points in the movie for me. Yeah, it comes off. I'm I'm a little mixed on it because I do have a bit of a chuckle when I watch it. And I'm not sure. I'm trying to watch it as 1954. Exactly. And that's how you have to look at it. Yeah. There's yeah. the one way where we'll look at it. We judge it for what it is in the genre and when it was made and then whether it can withstand the test of time. And that you do at the end. We'll do at the end, right? Right, but, right. But I guess for... The time period, this was a very commonplace thing in movies like this. This is what the audience wanted. 
to see. Like the audience, the target audience wants to see a joke like this. I hadn't thought of it that way because, you know, again, I'm not that familiar with this time period or the genre from that time period. And I was in my brain, I was trying to wonder, like, is this It's probably wrong to say progressive, but no, this isn't progressive. This is, you know, but they're all white, like they're all white dudes who are, you know, like they are dressing up as no, but they're playing you know, it for jokes. They're making they are fun of it. Jokes, they're not there. Like if someone who is actually into this or was having trouble with their sexuality, they're not, you know, enlightening somebody about something like this. They're playing it for laughs. Yeah, they're not promoting the LGBTQ yeah. agenda here in this in this act. That's true. You're right. They are playing. They're stuff. playing it for cheap laughs. It's not where I draw the line at it. You want to do that? That's fine. It's just. The rest of the movie doesn't play that way. So it's like, why throw this in there? It just felt like, you know, we've got a specific audience that wants to see this. So here's your the joke for you. You've seen mm-hmm. it in other films in the era. So we got to put ours in this movie. I, I can see what you're saying again. Like, like you look at some like it hot, right? That's a famous one from around this time. The end of the movie that, you know, they're cross-dressing in disguise, but they're, you know, men dressed as women and it's played for laughs. Yeah. So that's interesting because I think perhaps and I've seen it in other movies too, like that, you know, for whatever reason makes me think of Tootsie, which was made in the seventies with Dustin Hoffman. And it, I mean, I also played it for laughs, but you know, when the reveal comes, everybody's kind of offended because, you know, he's dressing up as a woman, even though like there's. It's not a thing, so it's almost like like this is it's it's lighthearted enough that nobody cares. I mean, there are places where you could go in the world today where you could cross dress and try to play it for laughs, and you probably get stoned to death, even oh, though yeah. you were playing for laughs, right? So here it's like they're playing for laughs, and everybody's good with it. Like it's not a big deal. So that's the only reason why I say I don't want to say it's progressive, but the fact that they do it at all is a sign to me that it's a little bit more accepting than you know it's not blackface. No, no, maybe no. it is. I don't know. Maybe it's the equivalent of it for for that. But uh, again, it's hard to say without having lived in that time frame. It's it is hard to say. Yeah, it is. It, I, it's it's just a product of its time. That's the yeah. End of it. They actually had to dub over. They did try to sing this number, Danny Kay and uh, Bing Crosby. But you can see Bing Crosby cracking up during the entire set. So they they did have to dub over uh, the vocals there because he just could not hold his shit together. And and Danny Kay kept egging him on by. Uh, hitting him with the with the feathers there so anyway they jump into the cab they get to the train and this is where bob finds that phil has lost their tickets or something so they uh, head up to the club car and we get the scene on the train they meet the girls again Uh, they have their their first song together the four of them in the club car surprise surprise the bartender's black (laughs) i love how you point that out It is the 50s after all, so yeah. I guess that's what you get. What did you think about the time? I, on the, I don't want to necessarily single out too much, but the time on the train, it is, a, it is a brief sequence. But what did you think of how this plays out here? Again, because it's a musical, they, they have to sing their way through their troubles. It's the singing exposition, so the snow sequence, uh, the song, it's okay. I didn't hate it, I didn't like it. You know, they refer back to it a few times more and, you know, it's a little foreshadowing. I like, I like that because, you know, everyone's expecting the snow and then you don't have the snow when they get there. So I felt it was kind of appropriate. You're building up, oh, Vermont snow. I didn't mind that kind of joke. 
because then you know it, there's a little bit of a payoff later. It's a shock, like oh, they're right. in Vermont. There's no snow, so I sort of liked the sequence and, and this little song. Yeah, no, I, I, you're right. It is uh, it is good foreshadowing. The reason I bring it up is you know train this type of train travel is not common anymore in North America. I mean, you, you certainly still can do it, but it isn't how people travel anymore. Not that you can't, but I just find that there's something very quaint and romantic about this type of travel, you know, like getting a, a basically a hotel room on a, on a train, you know, being able to go hit the bar on a train. I, I love the concept. Yeah, so do I. Yeah. Something I've always wanted. I always wanted somebody to get murdered on a train when I'm on it. Not <laughs> yeah, me, yeah. of course, or someone no, that no. I care about. But Not somebody you care about, just some rando that you can go and... Uh, <laughs> You know, no, it's like, Sherlock uh, the, the mystery. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've always uh, fantasized. Okay, yeah. murder no, on that... the murder on the Calgary Sea Train. All right, <laughs> like, you don't want that, dude, because that's there's a broken needle on the ground, a used condom, a couple of drunk assholes yelling their fucking <laughs> guts out. It's that's... like every other fucking city, right? So yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, no, I, I got to always... think of something to get me to work. It's you know, it's six thirty in the morning. Right? <laughs> you got to fantasize like, about something. Yeah, most men would fantasize about something else. You're fantasizing about some crack addict murdering some bitch on the on the train. As I pass the crack max, that's what I got to think about, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I've always wanted to to ride on a train, I, and that's part of why I love this sequence here. It, it feels. So I want to say authentic, but I don't know because I've never been on a train like this. But it just it just it, I want to get on the Harry Potter train to Hogwarts. That's yeah, what I want. yeah, the Hogwarts. You, you want to see a fucking train? That's a fucking train ride. That looks like a good train ride, exactly. Yeah. Although I don't think they serve booze on that train. That's the only downside. But they got the butterbeer, don't they? Yeah, but butterbeer is for kids. It's no, there's no booze in it. Instead of booze, is butter. I, I'm sure some asshole can conjure up me some alcohol on that fucking train. Well, I guess they could conjure anything because you know it's magic. But yeah, I'll take some butterbeer, but I want this train because I don't want any dementors. <laughs> anyway, okay. uh, where were we? Dementors? Oh, yeah, right. So we arrive in Vermont and there's no snow. It is hot. There hasn't been snow since Thanksgiving. And, you know, to, uh, we head to the inn, the Columbia Inn, where the girls are booked to play their show over the holidays. And... This is where we run into General Waverly, who turns out to be the owner of the Columbia Inn, where the girls are booked to play. And we have a bit of a reunion with uh, Davis and Wallace and the and the general who runs it with his granddaughter. What did you think? Is this too much of a coincidence here? Or are you okay with this chance meeting? Normally, I would not in a different type of movie. It mm-hmm. is a massive coincidence. Yeah. But this movie is not... It's a musical. It's not. It's a Christmas movie. It's not being. It's not meant to be taken that seriously. So in a genre such as this, no problem. Completely yeah. acceptable because he's now really the MacGuffin. He's the the Covenant. He's the fucking Shankara Stone of the movie moving forward. Yeah, he is the Shankara Stone because he rips your heart out at the end, doesn't he? Uh, I, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> I like the reunion. Ah, oh, well, the reunion part, but where they they salute him. Yeah, I kind of I kind of liked all of that, and they're like, "Oh, general," and he's like, "Ah, oh, you know, we we keep the general thing quiet around here." He's a nice guy. He's a boss. This guy's a boss. Yeah, he's a good guy. I like the actor. I like him. I like the performance. I like the character. The yeah, I thought I thought he did a pretty good job. He doesn't have a whole lot, and he he's a little. I don't want to say one note, but he did a a very good job. I I bought this guy as a retired general, and he I like the he, pride. Like, if we want to get into the character, I liked his. 
You could tell his confidence, his pride in his life, and also that sensitive side that, that that's to him. That, you know, he cared about his men, and then you know his um, vulnerabilities here. Yeah, he knows. You could tell this guy. He's you know a nervous wreck uh, with with respect to his business. He knows he's going under, but he takes it in stride, and you know he is a champ through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, I I liked it at the even at the end. You know, we're jumping when he gets emotional and you know realizes what these guys did for him and stuff like that he did a really good job i was very impressed i completely agree you believe that this is a general that you know the men loved and would and would die for yes you know you definitely bought that he did he did a great job and it's not it's not necessarily written in the dialogue uh he just manages to i mean that's just that's solid solid acting that's a guy making the most of what he's got which is uh, fantastic so anyway back to the the scenes here we get to, we cut to the sisters performing their act in the main hall we see that you know attendance is way down at the end there's only a couple of tables that are filled up we've learned that he's sunk everything into this business it's not doing well especially without the without the snow you know what really is interesting it's like one i mean first of all foreshadowing climate change like what the fuck anyways <laughs> yeah uh, but anyways out of curiosity like one like did they make mention like it was like this like in previous years like the weather was this bad or it's like is this just a one-off because if it's a one-off I think he would have enough savings or business sense to be able to survive one poor year of bad weather. It's hard to say. I don't. We don't get a great. We don't get a lot of backstory here. Uh, I believe the line is he sunk all of the money into remodeling it, like it was like a barn or something. Like it wasn't. He didn't buy an inn. He bought like a mill or something like that, and he renovated it. So I don't know how long he owned it for. So I, it didn't really come across, but I believe the implication was that he recently bought it and renovated it. And so he's already kind of in debt and, and there's no, and you know, right. There's no cash flow, And this is, you know, in, in the early years, you can't really afford to have just a disaster of so a year because so trying to get it off. Ass. Well, I mean, I don't know if he's a dumbass, but it's just like he, you know, he bought it, he renovated it, and then you know nobody showed up because the year was shit, and you know <laughs> so not, it's easy. Right? He's he's no bomb bad general. <laughs> he's not a bomb bad general. No, no, he's not. No, yeah, too um, bad. He should have he should have built it in a swamp with a bunch of slimy green reptilians with bad grammar. Is is where he should have built it. <laughs> Uh, then he would have been bomb bad. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, but it, I mean, it's not it's not all that clear. I don't know it's that important, but anyway, the the boys get to, you know, they obviously they want to help. So the idea is to bring the show, uh, which is huge, up to up to the inn. So so I just want to stop you here. All right. This is the point where even before they get the idea, I leaned over to my wife and I said, "Let me guess what happens. They're gonna help them with their show." And I, I pretty much nailed down every plot point all the way to the end, including bringing, bringing the whole division back or whoever, whoever was surviving back as a surprise. I called it. Hmm. It was clear as day. But, you know, it's not the movie's fault. This is just, you know, Hollywood replicating the same formula since, you know, this time over and over and over again. And these uh, cheesy, schmaltzy Christmas TV movies of the week, they do the same yeah. shit as well. Yeah. No, it's the its the dance-off to save the rec center or the uh, the telethon to save the TV station. Uh, 
Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we haven't had a callback in a while, so yeah, yeah no, absolutely, and, and you're absolutely right. There's there's no surprises here. But that being said, and I think I brought this up on you know several of our more recent episodes, is I I'm sick and tired of the obvious twists and turns that come out of Hollywood movies now. Like everything's there's a conspiracy. You know, the villain's plan is so convoluted that it, it can't possibly have worked, and yet it does. It's like, you know, like in Total Recall, where what's-his-name says, convenient, I'm surprised it worked. Like, that's how every villain's plan is in every movie now. I kind of appreciate something that's just a little more straightforward, heartfelt, and genuine. Well, I don't know. I mean, again, it's 1954. How do we – it's hard to judge, right, back in the back in the day. No, no, but I don't fault the movie here. This is – Hollywood's problem, you know, fucking, you know, training us to expect the same fucking shit every single time. Yeah. Because they have no fucking idea. We're brainwashed. I mean, I, I'd like to say you and I aren't, but we still go and watch the movies. I don't watch every movie. No, we don't. Well, nobody watches every movie. Nobody no, watches no. any movie. Most no, people watch my, for- my movie watching is like significantly decreased over the years yeah, because fine. it's the same fucking shit every yeah. fucking time. It's another reason why we wanted to do this particular pod- type of podcast is like, you know, what, why are we going to sit there and review the same thing every week if it's all the new mainstream shit? You know, the oh. same fucking comments every I, time. Oh, God. I might have killed myself by now if I had to watch all the new movies. Jesus. Exactly. I mean, shit. All right. Oh, fuck. Anyways, back on track. Back on track. All right. So they conspire to get you know the whole show up to the inn, and it's going to cost, as Bob says, wow. It's going to cost wow amount of money, which is somewhere between ouch and boing. Which I kind of I, I like that little joke there. Yeah, it's uh, it's playful, but again, yeah. you know, sign of the times, right? I mean that that kind of yeah. dialogue is won't even fly in the prequel trilogy. Oh. So, um, uh, well, you know what? If that had been in the prequel trilogy, it might have been the best written piece of dialogue <laughs> in the prequel trilogy. I wouldn't go that far. This, this is pretty. This is pretty. This is also pretty cringeworthy. But I let it go because it's the genre. Yeah, and yeah. it's a sign of the time. But I I can't see people enjoying. You enjoy that now? Or you're saying, okay, I understand it's meant for this time period, so I let it go? Or do you actually get a thrill out of people responding this way? Well, I no, I don't because it's uh, playful yeah. or whatever. I don't. I know. get a I get a huge thrill out of it. I got a I got a semi. Ouch, right boy! Because of that. I mean, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got a half chub right now because of that. <laughs> <laughs> I have a fondness for old style dialogue, like really anachronistic terms. Shit you couldn't say now, really old fashioned stuff. I I like. I mean, I know you couldn't say it now. Seriously, are you an angel? Oh man, I was just gonna. (laughs) I was trying to think of. uh, He's very, very dangerous. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So I, you know, yeah, I like it. But I, you know, I know it's from the fifties. So you know, fifties dialogue has a has a way about it. It's kind of it's entertaining for what it is, and I think I can appreciate it as a sign of the time. So yeah, I, I laughed. I know it was from the 50s and it's goofy. Nobody ever, probably nobody ever actually said that in the 50s either. That's fine. I, I don't have a problem with it. I, I like it. I, 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 you know, it's played for laughs and yeah, it's fine. It's good. Okay. I'm all right yeah. with it. Anyway, so the uh, the housekeeper gets wor- wind of this, uh, you know, thinks everything's great. So they get the, they get the show up to the lodge there. They'll bring up the sets. They got all the players. Uh, it's a big, it's a big, huge uh, gong show getting everybody up to the lodge. We get a couple of the dance acts, which are 
interesting, to say the least. Yes, there is one weird where these guys were doing in black leotards, yeah. doing these weird fucking poses around yeah. Vera Allen or whatever. Yeah. Or yeah. Rosemary Clooney. I can't remember which one was in it, but in the number. But yeah, these acts were a little... This to me feels like some of the sequences in um, Star Trek, the motion picture, is they're just looking at the fucking <laughs> <laughs> weird patterns in space. Like, this yeah. is now, okay, we got the people who came to see musical this far. We got to now throw in a bunch of not singing and dancing numbers because this is what they expect. This is what they came to see. They didn't yeah. care about the story or the message or the Christmas spirit. They came to see the songs or the dance numbers. But the weird thing here yeah. is in this one, it's just like how in Star Trek Motion Picture, they had to pay for the people who, you know, they had to cater to the people who were fucking stoned or high out of their minds. Yeah, there's some real avant-garde stuff going on here. I wouldn't even go that far, man. This is, you know, this part of the movie is terrible. Even for those where I have to, you know, take, put on the critique hat and say no. Even because I'm not impressed with any of these numbers. I'm not impressed with the set design, the costume design. Everything feels cheap, quick, and dirty here. I'm not wowed by any of this. This is to be honest. Yeah, I'm not wowed I'm by the, anything the here, but I'm not. Numbers I'm talking. Yeah, me too. Yeah, the musical numbers. I'm not wowed by anything here either. I don't know that it's fair to call them cheap, though, because I, again, I don't know the context. I want to believe that this is, uh, you know, a sign of what those shows would have looked like at that time. Maybe, and yeah, so we, we weren't there, so hard to say, but just in comparison within the movie, I look at the dance number that Davis and, not Betty, the other sister had, the dancer, Judy, yeah. uh, Judy they had when they met at the restaurant, Yeah, and the set design there, the costuming, the moves, the music, that felt more theatrical and complicated. Right. But they're on, but they're on a stage here. Like they're rehearsing their stage show here, right? So it is okay. a little more manufactured, right? True. That's a good point. But now I'm, you know, you have to play devil's advocate here. This is meant to entertain the audience. So I realize that they're rehearsing, but I'm expecting to see something entertaining and I'm not entertained. Yeah. Okay. No, fair enough. You're not entertained, but does that make this uh, not entertaining to? People who would go and watch this type of song and dance show. That's a good question. And I don't know how this movie has fared critically over the years. Mm. So that's a good question. I mean, it has fared over the years. It has fared, I mean, well, critically for, for what it's worth. It is positively reviewed over time. I don't know how the specific dance numbers come out. I mean, the only dance number that I'm put off by is the real bizarre one, which is Danny Kay. And the in, troop of weirdos around him, and they're just doing the bizarre, bizarre shit where they're like, he's wearing a beret. Yeah. In the purple uniform, leotard, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was like, that one. That was a Jar Jar Binks number. That's a Jar Jar Binks number, 100% for yeah. sure. I mean, I smile because of how fucking off the charts weird it is. So it's almost pre-drug culture. It's like it should have been the 70s for how many drugs they should have been on. No, they, they needed, did that scene. They needed the shot doing, you know, Tambourine Man. That's what yeah, was needed it, here. No, it was it was Tambourine Man level crazy. There's there's no question. No, no, this wasn't Tambourine Man level crazy. They needed that level of crazy because this was just odd but not entertaining. Like, yeah, it, it wasn't, wasn't entertaining. It, it wasn't. It was just kind of like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, well, I don't what, understand. What are you doing? Like, what what is this? Like. 
like, uh, you know, I'm not laughing. I'm not entertained. I'm not amused. The skill that you're doing, the, like these feel felt all half-assed and half rehearsed. It's like, maybe it was a budgetary problem or a time constraint problem. It could be. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't, I think it's a stylistic choice here. Like this is the modern, this is like modern, like, no, but these numbers, at that point, that was like, that was like, that was like pushing the envelope dancing at that point in time like like postmodern type of style like but we're okay now we're com- going right but now not com- traditional stuff right yeah but now compare this to other movies of the era singing in the rain sound of music um or you could even do more modern stuff i mean uh movies like we talked about mulan rosa chicago they put a lot more effort into the choreography I think there's only one little bit here in this movie where it was like Vera and this other male dancer, they kind of do their own thing for about a minute. And and actually, the funny thing is now I remember a good point is when they were doing their, you know, that that strange guy who was the other dancer, tall, lean guy with the high yep. pants and Vera, they start yep. doing the dancing and it's all like tap dancing and stuff. So yep. fucking funny. I just was thrown right back to Data's day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. the, yeah, totally. yeah, he's doing the shuffle and he's like catching on. and He just looks up and so the big smile yeah. on his face. I prefer that over this. But yeah, a great. I mean, yeah, in TNG, it was awesome. Here, you know, it's a character moment for Data, and 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 more witty and funny. Here, it's just I don't know what's going on. Well, they're doing. I mean, they're doing a bit, and it doesn't quite fit with the film because we're watching a Christmas movie. So yeah, and that's the other thing. Tonally, it's just you know. Yeah, tonally, it's off, and I think that may be the biggest problem. It's interesting that you say because you're talking about choreography because that was. The name of the song that they're doing with the weirdos is oh, it's called choreography. Well, because they're they're you know the line is like he says, uh, "What's happened to the theater?" Blah blah blah. They're they aren't tapping anymore. They're doing choreography. Chicks and kicks. I don't know. I'm just like more. They're doing choreography. So like you know what I mean. Like it was sort of a. I don't know if it was a comment on on dancing there where they're uh, we're we're getting a little out of sequences. They do these, they pepper these around. But uh, let's talk about the scene. Uh, so it's at night, and Bob and Betty run into each other in the main hall. It's at, you know it's nighttime. Well, they're trying to get him to kiss or get together, right? You know, yeah, like they have a couple sandwiches, glass of milk. And this is sort of the first real scene with just the two of them together and they're sort of warming up to each other. You know, obviously, you're meant to believe the romance is building up here. How did you find this scene play out? Is the chemistry there? How did you like the dialogue and how this this scene played out? Yeah, this is kind of funny. I like the quartet, as we talked about together, but... Mm. I felt that one-on-one Bing Crosby and Rosemary Clooney, they had chemistry in terms of the singing and the dancing. I really didn't see the sparks fly naturally between them. Mm. I like the dialogue that they have, like when they just talk, but then they just later on fall in love or they kind of see. Because I think it also is kind of a little weird, maybe just because how, I don't know what the real ages are of the actors here. But it just feels like Bing Crosby is so much older than Rosemary Clooney that yeah. I just didn't buy this relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and he is so much older uh, than her. You know, yeah. he, he looks a little younger than he actually is and she looks a little older than she actually is. But it's still quite a uh, quite a difference. Yeah, it's a little hard for I, – I, even though they had some nice quiet moments – just because they have quiet moments over a fucking milk and a sandwich doesn't mean that it works. And I don't think it works. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think I agree that the quartet, all four of them together, have great chemistry. 
But when you start to break them off a little bit, I mean, other than Danny Kaye and, uh, and Bing Crosby have good chemistry together, the two of them, but they're the only pair that has great chemistry together actually, outside you know of what? that. It's kind of mm. funny. I felt that actually Danny Kaye and Vera Allen had some good chemistry as well. I liked them together. Yeah, I, I liked them together, but I found it was still not – it just – it wasn't quite there for me for those two. I think that felt more – I think it was less, good. Like, yeah, I felt less manu- – but it, to me, it felt less manufactured than – you know, Crosby and... Uh, oh, okay. Clooney. Interesting. Yeah. See, I, I feel the reverse about that, but I think... I, but it's close to me. Like, both of those couples kind of feel similar to me in the in the chemistry. This scene in particular, though, I I really enjoy. I do find it, you know, not to be a, not to be a, a sap, but I do find it very romantic, you know, late at night with the fire and the, you know, with it's the cool sandwiches set, and the milk. Yeah, it is a cool set. It is it's a cool, cool set. set. I love the fireplace and just in the ground, yeah. in the, I mean, the fire pit just built into the floor. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that looks good. Yeah. Surprised the place didn't burn down, but doesn't really exist. So, yeah, good point. Yeah, it's not real. So, it's good it didn't burn down because that would have been a shame. Very different movie. Anyways, as we get back to the inn the next day, is where we find out that the general has applied for active duty back in, in the army. So, I guess, you know, even he knows that maybe the whole in scene isn't working out for him and we get uh bob who's picked up the mail to read him the the letter there so you know this is just a small scene played uh very low key where uh, bob reads in the letter and it's it's clear that they don't want general waverly back in the army how did this scene play out no for you? just just no to all of it no this, all is, of it. Okay. this is no see two things. All right. This is again going back to the schmaltzy TV Christmas movie thing. It's like, okay, we're working towards a solution to help this person, but to make it dramatic at the end, he's gotta have another setback. Just to get the audience invested in this character again. To make the emotional payoff at the end all that more of a swell, a happy moment. He has to be knocked down another peg. Mm. That that so this is Every movie like that. This is this is classic fucking bullshit Hollywood 101. Now, because this movie's old, I'm allowed I'm forgiving it for this trope because is it really a trope at this point? It might be. I don't know yeah. that and I'll forgive it and I'll give it a little bit more leeway here. But this is a fucking trope. You know, we're working Well, it is toward, now for yeah, sure. Yeah, it is because we're working towards a solution to help the guy out, but to make it more dramatically happy at the end, satisfying we got to knock him down another peg. He's got to have some other problem. Didn't work out. Oh, fuck. Okay. Now even the army doesn't want the sap. So, fuck. Okay, we got to really, you know, pull up our slacks even higher up to our fucking nipples. It was already fucking up to our fucking ribs, but let's <laughs> no, get it call, up to the nipples. collarbone, baby. Call, it's going yeah, collarbone. Yeah. Let's go atomic wedgie now. <laughs> fuck. Yeah, totally. <laughs> right? So, uh, l- let's get it up there and get this shit done, right? So, that's that's what's going on here. But, saying that... I liked, surprisingly, liked the scene still between Bing Crosby and uh, the General Waverly character, uh, Wallace and Waverly. The dialogue was good, and I loved the fact that Waverly didn't even have to read the whole message. Oh, yeah, see, they're not even really interested. I know where this is going. So they didn't linger on the moment too long, and I appreciated it. And it also shows the intelligence of Waverly and the kind of guy who doesn't want to sit there. He'll, he's a general. He doesn't want to show his emotional side. You know, he doesn't want to, you know, sit there and, you know, let him get humiliated. He just kind of quickly ended the conversation. He did, you know, because he was asking Wallace to read the letter, but he knew it, where it was going. And he said, ah, oh, don't worry about it. Yeah, well, that's kind of why I, I like that scene is yeah, because that's I think why it's I like played it. well. Yeah. yeah, 
and, and I agree with you. But yeah. it's not a fucking excuse anymore, really. I, it's this fucking shit. I can't handle it anymore in modern movies. I mean, that's an interesting perspective. I, I see what you're Well, and that's kind of why I say, you know, modern movies where they keep doing the same shit. Well, it's like Luke Skywalker. He get, gets his hand cut off. Well, now let's just cut off his dick. Maybe that's what happened after episode, you know, after episode Is that what six. they, is that how they opened Return of the Jedi? I don't remember him getting his. <laughs> no, no, but I'm saying that's, there. That, but that's why Empire, that's why st- those movies are awesome. Here's Probably Maskinata had his, had Luke Skywalker's like <laughs> withered old dick in that box. It was under the lightsaber. <laughs> I like that Wookiee. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. That's a... <laughs> Another story for another time. <laughs> yeah, that one is. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking yellow Yoda. Go away. Terrible character. Yeah, Fuck, I was, hate her. She was not, yeah. Useless. Not, not, a, not useless. a fan either. Yeah. Anyways, move on. All right. This is where everything kind of, this is kind of where it crystallizes where, so now it's like, okay, shit's really bad. Let's get the whole division up here. And this is where things kind of go sideways. So he's on the phone. Bob's on the phone trying to arrange TV appearance. So he can reach the entire 151st division. Now, due to some shenanigans on the phone, the housekeeper thinks that he's just doing this as a publicity stunt and blabs to Betty that that that's what's going on here. So she kind of freaks. And, you know, as she's warming up to Bob, she's like, oh, this is BS. And she takes off to New York. Uh, obviously, Bob doesn't know what's going on here. Uh, so this is where Phil and Judy further conspire to pretend that they're going to get married in order to push Bob to propose to Betty. And this is kind of where I go like, OK, how this is now this is a shitty plan, mm-hmm. right? Like, how is these guys getting married going to push Bob to get married? Now, this is a now this is a trope. Yeah, this, this is, is something a trope. In, in some bullshit rom-com nowadays so yeah this is so what do you yeah yeah but this is exactly what you said is the trope they needed to do something because this movie really needs something else happening here because nothing else is happening Mm -hmm. you know they're they're already there to help him so early on in the movie the the general and it's a bunch of song and dance empty song and dance numbers in the middle in the middle act here so we need something in the third act to raise the emotional stakes so this is where this is coming from I don't really have too much of a problem with it because really, what else are you going to do? This isn't an action movie. This isn't a thriller. It's not a mystery. What else are you going to do? You need some kind of love issue happening here. Yeah. I don't mind that, you know, Betty misunderstood and then went away, even though it's like, well, wouldn't you still want to help the general regardless and to just not get together with Bob if you think he's an asshole? But considering the genre, I guess I let it go. And the other two getting married to try and get them back together, it didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. So that I agree with. That's a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, exactly. It's a little silly, but the only reason they're doing this at this point is so that Judy and Phil get together, which isn't really necessary for the story, but they want to, you know, everything kind of needs to get tied up. So they don't need to do it. It's got to end happy, feely, you know, gooey. Well, and it it does have to end that way, but we don't need these two to get together for that to happen, but may as well, I guess, at this point. Yeah. So, you know, anyway, so they announced their engagement, which, uh, you know, obviously feels a little forced. Bob heads to New York to get onto TV so he can announce to the 151st Division, you know, what the situation is. There's a little physical comedy there where they have to lure Waverly away from the TV while Bob makes his announcement there. I guess it's just a little bit of slapstick, and it's... Yeah, Mrs. Jar Jar. 
Yeah, this is some Jar Jar. I was going to say some Cosmo Kramer, some very rudimentary Cosmo Kramer here. I didn't mind it. I mean, it's it's okay yeah, because, you it's know, okay. it's... It's a sign of the times, right? And and that's okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's okay. We get back to the inn. Yeah, Bob was at the TV show in the yeah. city. Yeah, right. So he can yeah. announce the to the division. So he, he announced the whole thing. He did the song. They pulled then, the general away, which yeah. is fine. And then Betty realizes what he did. Oh, okay, he right. So, Bet- yeah. so Betty sees the TV appearance. She realizes that it's not just free publicity for Wallace and Davis allows herself to fall back in love with Bob. And basically everybody heads back to the inn. They put on the huge the huge show at the inn for the 101st Division there. You know, they get yeah. as many guys as possible there. And General Waverly walks in and all of his men are there. That was a good huge moment. Huge celebration. Yeah, that was a good moment. I, and, I like that. And that's a great moment. It's a Christmas feel-good moment. And, and I liked that moment. That was good. Yeah. It felt good. I mean, there's... Another thing too, it felt epic. Like uh, the sets, the set was pretty huge and they had a lot of people there. You know, it kind of felt like when he came in and you had all those people lined up on the side, it kind of felt like the throne room and the end of a new hope where they're walking down the hallway in a sense a little bit. And he felt that grand, you know, epic scale of everything. It's not as big here, obviously, but I'm still impressed considering the time where this Mm -hmm. was made and they took the effort to get all those people there. And have such a big room. And that added to the effectiveness of the scene. Yeah, I, I totally agree. There's a, a significant emotional impact here because we don't even know how many guys are going to make it until you know, like we kind of walk into the room with General Waverly and all these guys are there. And it's great. And again, a great performance from the actor playing uh, General Waverly there, Dean Jagger. He's able to portray so much in his face without really emoting too much. Uh, yeah, it's. I think it's just great. Again, Christmassy, but... I think there's, you know, this is 1954. World War II is still probably very fresh in audiences' minds here. I mean, it is a war that is still glorified to this day and probably was at that that moment, you know, where war heroes were still really a thing. And, and you know, we're led to believe that he is he is a hero of the war. But his fault, you know, he's, he's a man who's fallen on hard times. I mean, nowadays... I mean, Rambo, our first blood, sorry, was was a film where, you know, we see in film where veterans are not heroes. They're pieces of garbage. Anti-heroes. In a sense. Yeah. Or, or, or but they're, they're lesser, right? Yeah. They're, or they're treated they're, lesser, yeah. They're treated like shit and then shouldn't be, right? Regardless of how you feel about whatever war they fought in, no, you know, nobody who's gone to war should ever be treated as anything less than gold in my in my opinion regardless of your opinion of whatever war they fought in after world war ii i take that speaking, yeah i take that veterans, with a grain of salt but that's a well, different topic that's a very political and sensitive topic but for the most part i agree with you but this is the greatest generation this is the greatest generation exactly and and, and, and a member of that generation who has not had things go his way necessarily and and this is a scene where we get to see like you know what no we're you know, we're still here. We're still here for you. And, and we, yeah. those of us who died for you, died for you. And those of us who didn't would have, and, and we're here for you now is great. Uh, great scene. Oh yeah. hundred percent agree. It's the best scene in the movie. It's in for a Christmas movie. This is a great payoff. Yeah. And, and I, I love this, the musical number, the song they do. I'm not sure what the song is called, but it's, you know, like the we'll follow the old man wherever he yeah. wants to. Oh, yeah, I, I like that. Uh, that number's great. So what'd you think of all of a sudden just Betty just showing up all dressed up and just can jump right in as they've already, you know, kind of in the middle of the act? 
Well, and, yeah, that's a little. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, that's uh, again, it's that a, that's was, a trope, but that's uh, a trope. Yeah, I'm not a fan, but you know what are you gonna do? Yeah, you, you kind of need it because that's you know that's um, the extra icing on the cake payoff. Yeah, you're right because I mean we've had the love story building, so it's part of it. So I guess you kind of yeah you need it a little bit, but you're right. Yeah, it's a little bit forced. Yeah, is it more contrived than it starts to snow magically? No, no, it's not. But that is that that is the trope. Holy fuck! Like that is that's yeah. played in so many fucking movies. Even in fucking Die Hard, I think. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, uh, yeah, well, it does start to snow in Die Hard, but at least. So, yeah, so I mean, that's just a staple of of Christmas movies in a nutshell. I mean, mind so. you, that is the name of the that is the that is the name of the movie, right? So yeah, yeah it does it, have to start snowing. It does have to start snowing. I didn't mind it. I mean, it's okay. It's a nice little wrap up. It's for a movie like this, I don't expect anything less, and uh, you know, you have to let it go. You know. Yeah, it, it, it is a movie the at the end of the day, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, you have to accept it for what it is, and I'm perfectly fine with that. The, you know, the song White Christmas actually debuted in a different film, in a film called Holiday Inn, which also starred Bing Crosby. The song won an Academy Award for Best Original Song, but for a movie that came out earlier uh, than this. So, you know, just to go, kind of go back to the song. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, so that's, that's a good uh, song. So that's, yeah, it, it is a good song. It's I mean, it's simple. Song. It, it kind of captures the, the Christmas spirit in, in a way. I think it's it's emblematic of well, it's emblematic of the season. It's it's part of it's part of culture now. I mean, even if you don't really know where the song came from or know too much too many details of the song, it's it is a piece of of culture now. So it is. It's one of my more favorite Christmas songs, actually. Yeah, it is one of mine too. It is it is one of those songs. So so that's White Christmas, Harry. You know, kind of give me your general thoughts on. I uh, won't do the necessarily the recommendations just yet, but what uh, what are you sort of your your overall thoughts of, of the film at the end here. For a Christmas movie, it, it does its job well. And for a movie of its time and it being a musical, being a musical, I think this is where it kind of drops the ball in some aspects because on a personal level, because I feel I wasn't really impressed with most of the songs or musical numbers in itself. And unfortunately, I think it because they're doing it as rehearsal, and they're stuck in one setting, mm-hmm. I really don't think that helps. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you see other musical numbers that are happening, and it's a little bit more fluid, more dynamic. You have part of, uh, you know, different locales, and they kind of utilize those environments as part of their musical numbers. Even if it's a matte painting in the background, they kind of do different things. Here, they're just stuck on a stage as yeah. part of a rehearsal. So that aspect, I really don't like it as much of a musical, but I like the Christmas spirit. I like the interplay as a quartet, as we talked about between the four leads. I think individually, each lead did a very good job acting for mm-hmm. the particular genre. I was very surprised that I liked Danny Kaye, you know, the lean Jar Jar Binks type character. He was funny without being overly slapstick like Jar Jar, but it's part of the, the genre that you have a guy like that. And he's kind of the odd couple with Wallace, Bing Crosby, and I liked their interplay together. And then I mentioned I liked the uh, some of the dialogue. It didn't feel overly forced and overly dramatic that, that is uh, commonality as part of this era of filmmaking. 
So mm. with those respects, I liked it, but I think the movie suffers from being stuck in a one location. And yeah. that's a bit of an unfortunate, you know, consequence of a movie like this, the way the story is just told. It's almost like a, a bottle show, right? Where everything's in one sort of contained location there. And, and you yeah. definitely see, I mean, yeah. this is the era where films are, are shot on a soundstage, not on location. Yeah. And, and it's, and it, it definitely does show. Yeah. The unfortunate you know, side effect is that the feeling I get from this movie, it just feels like a TV movie. TV yeah. I can see special. where you, yeah. I would agree with you there if there wasn't a sense of theatricality and quality of performance about it. I mean, it, I don't know. It doesn't feel cheap to me. Like TV, TV specials feel cheap, mm-hmm. and this didn't feel cheap to me, even though there was a you know limited scope. But that, again, that's a sign of the times. Yeah, and I, and I actually agree with that. It does not feel cheap, so we shouldn't, you know, it's probably unfair to start kind of compare it to a TV Christmas special. Yeah, you're, you're right in that. What's interesting, and I, I, I didn't bring it up in the trivia, but, uh, you know, speaking of TV, uh, you might have noticed in the opening credits, it says first film uh, to be presented in Vista Vision. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that from yep. the from Yeah, the I credits. remember. Yep. In the early 50s, when TVs were becoming much more common in in the home, studios you know, felt like they had to compete with TV. So this was the era where they started to experiment with different formats for film. Uh, you know, TVs, uh, movies and TV were basically square at that point, or a 4-3 ratio. And this is where the era of widescreen was born in this time. And VistaVision was one of the early... Oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, one of the early proponents of it. Uh, there were some others, uh, CinemaScope, Paravision, blah, blah, and, and a couple other ones. But like theaters needed new equipment to be installed and uh, all kinds of stuff. This was the easiest to adapt because you could do VistaVision in uh, different aspect ratios. Basically involved running 35-millimeter film instead of vertically through a camera, which was the tradition, or which is how you do it to run it vertically through, uh, but it provided a higher resolution than some of the other widescreen solutions of the day. So this is sort of the start of the widescreen revolution. It, it was short-lived. Uh, it only lasted like maybe seven, eight years. Hey, but prog- anyway. Progress. Yeah, well, it was progress. Panavision took over, 70 millimeter came along. What's neat is that because of all of the cheap uh, unused 35 millimeter film for VistaVision. Japan bought up a bunch of the stock, and and most movies, uh, most Japanese movies, were filmed in this format right up until uh, year 2000, which is uh, kind of neat. Anyway, oh, just cool. a nice. just a little aside there, since we talked about TV. So yeah, no, I I, I mean I I agree. I, I think you know some of my thoughts here. I I really enjoyed the performances. Set design was fantastic. It's on a stage, but that's okay. I mean, they did a great job with making the sets look fantastic. They did. Yes, they did. Yeah. yeah. And I thought they got uh, really good performances out of people who, quite frankly, aren't really actors. They were singers and dancers. Yeah, I was impressed. I, I didn't mention before is I've never seen, you know, Bing Crosby in anything. And I was actually, I wouldn't say starstruck or engrossed or or anything like that but i could watch him in other movies if he played more dramatic roles i felt he had yeah. some kind of credibility to you know being an actor there, yeah. there was a foundation there whether you know because he probably has had some experience but he felt like a natural in a sense 
Mm-hmm. You know, one yeah. of those classic, you know, type of actors for the era that, you know, he had the acting chops. You know, he's not a tall guy. He's not the most handsome guy you're going to see, but he's, he felt like some guy I could watch in a variety of different roles. Now, what yeah. is, what his range is, is a, is a different story. But that's an interesting, that's something I think I might try and look at to see if he play, had any more dramatic roles and you know, take a peek at it. So it's piqued my interest in that. So that's a, a nice little side benefit here. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm not sure what his range would be, but he has good presence on screen and yes. his uh, good voice. Yeah, maybe not necessarily what you call a great actor, but just somebody that's very, very watchable on screen. Yeah. I think it's probably time to wrap up the the show any final thoughts on white christmas before our recommendations no i mean i'm just glad that you i'm very happy that you made this this choice you know because of the time of year it's before christmas and kind of sets the mood and sets the tone and we finally did a musical and going back to the earlier era of filmmaking in the 50s so i appreciated it and for what it's worth i had a, i had fun i have fun watching it it's a it's a film that's grown on me over the years i didn't care i didn't care much for it when i first saw it but you know many movies that i do enjoy now are movies that uh, just kind of dig a little bit deeper on on subsequent viewing so is this a recommendation for you harry and is it a rare antiquity so even though i had fun i can't say it's a rare antiquity because in comparison to other musicals of the time and ones you know whether we're talking about 50s 60s or modern filmmaking i have to say that there's still a lot lacking and i think that has to do with the story even though it's a christmas movie it's a very small scale story a very you know it's it there's not a lot of meat there and there's a lot of convenient plot points that happen like we talked about you know to get them together davis and vera had to pretend to get married and all that stuff that's not a lot here to you know that really gets me engrossed into what's really happening and mm-hmm. the musical numbers as well have a lot to be desired in my opinion and i think the movie suffers because it's stuck in one location but i enjoyed the acting for the most part i enjoyed a couple of the songs i did enjoy the set design i think that's one of the strong aspects of the movie costumes is okay but it's kind of a you know low end recommendation for me it's not a not recommend but it's not a high one it's low end but Considering the time period, I think that's a good thing because, you know, Mm. I don't have a lot of experience watching musicals. So I look at it as a win that I still had some fun watching it. It's cute. It's Christmassy. If this was the middle of the summer and you had suggested this, I would have said, oh, fuck. So maybe it's (laughs) kind of the, it might not have made the recommendation because I like the payoff at the end with General Waverly and what they did for him. I think that just gets it into the, based on that Christmas spirit itself. It gets it into the recommend territory, but it's not a rare antiquity, no way. Okay. I love the World War II stuff. I think that's a very interesting wrinkle into into the film here. Really enjoy the performances as far as being a musical, you know, not being a fan of the genre. I I, I like the fact that there isn't too much musical element here. I think it's a just the right amount for, for somebody who's going in more as a film fan as opposed to a musical fan. And, you know, like I say, I think the performances are all uh, very, very, very good and help sell it. I appreciate the more simplistic storyline and the, you know, the relationships that we have, the, the, the thrust of the story becoming, you know, helping out the war hero, the general from, from their days in World War II, I think is great. Uh, so for me, I'm not going to say a strong recommendation, but I'm going to say 
I, I'm going to recommend it. Yeah, for Christmas time. If it's July, no, there's not a whole lot. There's not a whole lot here for you if it's not Christmas time. I think. I think it. It, it kind of needs the holidays in order to feel relevant. I am going to say it's a rare antiquity, and the reason I'm going to say that is because there isn't. I know we talked a lot about tropes, and and there are some here, and there is some schmaltz here, but I think if this film escapes the standard Christmas movie schmaltz. Like, how many Christmas movies have a World War II thrust to it? Not none, zero. I'm probably going to say zero Christmas movies have a theme where, you know, uh, heroes from World War II uh, are, are trying to, uh, you know, stick together and help each other out. There, are there aren't any of that. Good performances, good straightforward storyline that uh, I think that hits more often than it misses. And for the most part, the musical numbers uh, work well. So, yeah, I'm, I, I am going to say it's a rare antiquity. And, I, and honestly, I, I surprised myself as well, but I just don't feel that there are other movies that this isn't something that you would see even from the even from the time i i know that like as you said there's things here that are kind of tropes even for the time frame but uh, i don't know i feel there's something special i do feel there's something special here uh, part of it's the world war ii part of it's the performances part of it is the the character interplay the songs how everything kind of fits together i feel this is a film that's more than the sum of its parts and and that's why uh yeah that's why i'm i'm giving it the the rare antiquity status yeah i just feel that there's not enough of usually musicals that are a bit more epic in nature and it doesn't have to be with the scale it just has to be with the more memorable ones they're more about something else here Mm. it's not really about the war i mean no i mean it's just really about you know Treating an old friend with respect. Down on his luck, he did a lot for us. Let's go help him out. It's Christmas time. They have a couple of guys doing the right thing and for a feel-good moment. And that is a good message. It's a Christmas message. But beyond that, there's nothing here. And that's where it kind of dumps it down into that TV, Christmas TV movie special feeling that I get. Even though I like some of that, what I see here, and I give it a pass for it being set in the 50s. If a movie like that's replicated now, even with better budget better actors or better song and dance numbers. Uh, I wouldn't give it a pass because it's, you know, I've been done to death. I've been done to death since though, but no, I know it... but that's why I'm giving it a slight recommend, but yeah. the problem is tonally it shifts so many di- in different directions and th- there's not a big focus. I know what the MacGuffin is. It's about the general and doing the right, nice thing for him, but there's a lot of different things that are happening and a lot of it doesn't get a focus. And then it's interrupted with these useless song and dance numbers, which are terrible. In a musical, I'm expecting even the musical numbers to be naturally fitting in the movie and about something. And the whole story is about something. The Sound of Music was was more about something, right? You know, well, I don't, yeah, yeah, I don't know that it's fair to, to I mean, Sound of Music is the Sound of Music, though. I mean... Yeah, I, I mean, because and, and that you're took right. Place in not, the war too, right? The so musical, I mean, there, was, there was more happening yeah. in that movie than it was in this movie. You know, there's yeah, no, there's a lot now, yeah, but yeah, but we're not talking about the sound of music. Though, no, right? I, I know, mean, I know, but then that's where I'm. I'm just talking about the rare antiquity level. Like my benchmark for that is, I feel there has to be something more here to for it to be getting that level of appreciation. I do think there is more here. I mean, I think they do fall a little bit flat. In the, in the musical aspect, because not all of the numbers, you know, kind of coalesce into the film because some of them are just one-offs because they're just doing the show, right? Like they're doing the Wallace and Davis show, which doesn't have anything to do with Christmas or the film. So they're, 
they're just there, right? Like they're just, they're filler. And that's certainly true. Like they could have taken out a number of those musical acts. It wouldn't have affected the film at all other than to reduce the runtime to probably a more manageable level. And I think that actually would have benefited. This movie could have. Oh, would have. This movie movie should have been shaved by 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. They they needed to take out a a lot of those acts. And I, I completely agree with you. I think there's a level of. There's there's so much I find that's so genuine here. It's hard to have genuine, bold-faced emotion, uh, love, loyalty, friendship without it being corny. And it and I feel that it's here, and that's really hard to do. Uh, and I feel it's here without any cynicism or I don't know what the word is, but it like I said, it feels it feels so genuine and Jim. Your name is Jim. Yes. Sometimes. That was an awesome moment. Come on. That was awesome. Outweigh the needs of the many. And you're right. Awesome moment. That's that's one of my favorite moments in Trek. Me too. Honestly. Actually, me too. Totally underrated. uh, And Star Trek Trek 3 is underrated. And the end of that is heart-wrenching. I love that moment. Anyway, I'd say we're, we're at the end of White Christmas. So thanks for uh, thanks for debating this one with me, Harry. What is in store for our next episode, my friend? Well, it's been a year since The Force Awakens already. Can't believe it. This no. year has just blown by us. And we're diving back into the mainstream because tomorrow night we are watching Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, and we are going to dissect that one to death. Yeah, I, I assume we're going to dissect the shit out of that. Not that I want to draw out the episode any longer here, but uh, what's your level of anticipation for Rogue One tomorrow? Pretty excited. I know next to nothing for spoilers. This is like one of the first times ever. Except I've seen the trailers, of course. So, And the story obviously is kind of, you know, fairly yeah, predictable. Known, right? So, yeah. you know, you kind of have a good feeling of how things are going to fall and into place and, you know, shit's going to happen. People are going to die and... But fuck, it's going to be, hopefully it's going to be sweet. I'm, Buzz is pretty good so far. So let's see if it can uh, hold up to our level of criticism because we can be pretty harsh. Yes, we can be, especially when it comes to Star Wars. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. I, I get the feeling I am less excited than the general public, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll find out on the next episode how it goes. I'm just excited that, and we'll talk about it, is that they're, because this isn't a saga story, and they're going in such a fresh direction with new characters, even though it ties into something we know and love, there's no expectations. Yeah. I only have one expectation, and that's Darth Vader. Like, he's got to be done right. You know, we talked about body language and shit like that, and Mm -hmm. I know James Earl Jones is coming back, but he's older, so they got to nail that down good. And if they do, yeah. and if he's got a good moment or two, I'm happy. That's my only expectation. Aside from that, I'm I'm hoping for a brand new experience here. Yeah, no, me too. I'm hoping for a brand new experience. And yeah, I, I guess we'll <laughs> we're already pulling it apart. We haven't even seen the movie yet. So anyway, let's uh, let's wrap it up there. Uh, thanks for doing the show, man. And we'll catch you real soon for Rogue One. Yes, and I think I know where the tickets are. But fuck, where did I put the tickets? <laughs> Anyways. Come on, man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you're you're fucking fired. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was a terrible one. <laughs> I, I, that's a callback. Yeah, I know it's a callback. It was a, it was a shitty callback. Yeah, I know. All right. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you tomorrow night. All right, man. We'll, we'll catch you then.